Hi, everyone. This is the Professional Association of Athlete Development Specialists, otherwise known as PADS, 2021 Athlete Development Summit podcast series. My name is Duncan Fletcher, the Executive Director of PADS. And today, along with my PADS colleague, Stephanie Thorburn, we have a fascinating conversation about social justice with Quentin Williams. Quentin has a unique perspective on what has been happening both in the United States and around the world over the past 18 months, and obviously much beyond that, based on his experiences as a federal prosecutor, an agent at the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and also his time working as a professional sports executive in both football and basketball. We have a really excellent conversation on tap for you today. We hope you enjoy it. And again, thanks for listening. Hello, friends. The PADS Athlete Development Summit podcast series is extraordinarily fortunate to have Aura Health as a sponsor this year. Founded in 2013, Aura Health is the company behind the health tech wearable, the Aura Ring, which provides actionable insights on sleep and its impact on your overall health. It's used by top performers across a variety of industries, including the NBA, the WNBA, NASCAR, UFC, and more. And in fact, I've got one on my finger, which I had before Aura even thought about sponsoring pads. I can tell you one thing for sure. It's definitely helped me align my sleep, which was an absolute car wreck. The Aura Ring delivers personalized readiness and activity and sleep insights automatically to the Aura app, providing wearers with practical steps for long-term improvement. I can attest to that. The Aura Ring is not a medical device and is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, monitor, or prevent medical conditions or illnesses. For more information, I'd urge you to check out AuraRing.com. And on behalf of PADS, we thank you for your sponsorship of the PADS Athlete Development Summit podcast series. Hi, everyone. Duncan Fletcher here, the Executive Director of PADS. Hello, everybody. This is Duncan Fletcher. I'm here with my colleague, Stephanie Thorburn. And Stephanie, we've got a great guest here today. I'm happy to introduce Quentin Williams. Welcome to uh, the PADS Summit, Quentin. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. You know, we're eager to have a conversation with you, man. You've got a fascinating background uh, that I think covers a wide range of things. I think you've done more than I could probably even contemplate doing. So I'm looking forward to kind of diving into your background a bit uh, and start talking about issues related to social justice and sport. So I think in order to get the full picture, we kind of need to dive in into this background and your experiences. So maybe we'll start right back in the, in the beginning. Like, you know, where did you grow up uh, and what was your experiences growing up as a kid? Well, thank you. And thanks for the question. So I was born on the island of St. Thomas. And at the age of four months old, after my mother had been abandoned by my, my biological father, she decided that she was going to bring me back to New York, where she was from. So we went back to New York. We didn't go back to where she was from in Eastchester, New York, which is a fairly nice place. We went back to uh, really squalor, living in squalor on the Lower East Side of Manhattan on Norfolk Street. And uh, for the next five years, that's where I grew up. And uh, we struggled. It was, a, it was a challenge. And then we moved to Yonkers, New York. And I tell people, I don't know if we were any better in Yonkers than we were on the Lower East Side, because Yonkers was going through some turbulent times, drugs, poverty, it was just the despair there. Uh, the education system was was really under scrutiny because there were federal cases that, uh, with respect to our, our education system. So I did all my schooling there, K through 12. And that's where I really, the meat of my childhood was spent in Yonkers, New York. And Yonkers, I must say right now, 
Yonkers is a great place. It's really on the on the up and coming uh, trail. But back then in the 60s and 70s, it was tough. And I think, you know, you then, despite kind of this challenging background, you found yourself uh, competing in D1 athletics. Can you tell us sort of about your, your experience in migrating into the collegiate athletic world? Yeah, well, it was always a dream. Ever since I was, I think it was six or seven years old, I saw Tony Dorsett playing, and I wanted to be Tony Dorsett. He was my inspiration. And so in the back of PS25 in Yonkers, I would pretend to be Tony Dorsett. We all had our favorite players. And um, the only issue I had was I was a small kid. I was pretty a pretty puny kid. And that lasted me until I was about 12 or 13. I started to work out. Um, and, and, and it was in order to really combat the bullies on the block. A lot of bullies. My mother's a white Jewish woman, so I would always get bullied about having a white mother. She was raising two black sons in a black neighborhood. It made for you know, a, a, a challenge for me as a young child, no father to protect me. So my mother had to be the bear and the mama bear and protect us. But when she wasn't around, I was getting it handed to me. And so I, I worked out and then got into a lot of fights. As I was working out, I figured out I was a pretty decent athlete. And so I put that to use. I started to dream about being a football player. And we were on welfare for the first 17 years of my life. So I, I saw sports as a way to perhaps get out of that situation. Also concentrated a lot on, at least gave a lot of effort in school to do well so that I could hedge my bets. And maybe it was academics that would get us out of there. Maybe it was sports or maybe both. And at some point, uh, the light just came on. All the hard work, I'd been working hard for years uh, to build my body up and to learn football. And because of that, it just shifted. Things shifted as a junior in high school. And I started to to be the player that I wanted to always dreamed of becoming and and that's when colleges started to look at me. I was recruited by, I think, 35 colleges, including some of the Ivies and uh, West Point. But BC stood out for me because they had a mix of both uh, academics and high-level sports competition. So and you're at Boston College, and if I'm not mistaken, you competed both in football and in track. Is that accurate? Yeah, I, I, I lettered in track, but I, I lettered in indoor track my senior year. So I, I should have run track earlier, but um, I didn't think I was fast enough. I, 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 these, these cats were running fast. I mean, they were, they were fast. So, <laughs> so, uh, so I didn't think I was fast enough. I ran track just to become a better football player, actually, because I was going to go back for my red shirt fifth year. And, um, and I, I ended up doing pretty well. I went to the the Big East, we had the Big East back then uh, as uh, in, at BC, and I, I made it to the semis in the 60, and, and then I decided after graduating, I decided not to go back for my fifth year. I was, I was working, um, and because I was making a little bit of money, it was the first time in my life when I was really making some decent money, not lifeguarding during the summer, you know, doing those kinds of things on minimum wage. I was making money as a bouncer uh, at a nightclub called 1018 in Manhattan, largest nightclub in, in New York. And I was also a paralegal at a law firm. So I was working 70 hours a week, two jobs and making some money. And I said, you know what? 
why am I going to go back? I'm not going to go to the NFL. I really had no desire to play uh, anymore, but I loved the college experience. So that's why I was going to go do it. And so I just stayed, stayed in New York and I worked and, uh, that was the beginning of my professional career, I guess, as a bouncer. I guess that's uh, sort of that first step towards law enforcement, right? Uh, in terms of keeping everybody in check when they're at the bar. Uh, and then, so did you go to law school first or did you go to the FBI first? So what was the path uh, in terms of uh, your next step? Because I know obviously the FBI became part of your future as well. Yeah, I, uh, well, the FBI wasn't even a thought for me. As I was a bouncer, I thought I was going to be a bouncer for 20 years. I really enjoyed it. I couldn't get a job out of out of BC. I had an economics degree, but the job market was really soft. And because I couldn't get a job, when as soon as I started making money as a bouncer, I was like, oh, this is pretty good money. Uh, I thought that was it. And, and I had a... a a mentor named Jay Brussman, who is still like a big, he's a big brother to me. He, every week he would be on me about going to law school. He said, you need to go to law school. You need to go to law school. Now, I, I didn't even know what a lawyer really was at that point. And I didn't know what it would entail, but because he wore me down, I applied and I got in. And because I got in, I went and this is with a reading deficit. So nobody knew that I had this reading deficit. I really couldn't read well. I, I could, I have, I haven't had brilliant people around me. And so I was always trying to keep up with them. I noticed that it came with such ease the way they read. They could, they were reading books. I was reading paragraphs. So I never read a full book in my life up through uh, high school. And I mean, we were, I was in honors classes. So everybody reading 20 books a year. But I was getting by on the cliff notes and just skimming and trying to figure it out. When I went to college, at Boston College, I had to apply myself in a different way. I had to force myself. I don't know what I have. I think it's a te- an attention deficit disorder. I don't know what it is, but I, I overcame it. It took a while. Boston College was the first step. But when I went to St. John's Law School, I couldn't. There's no faking it. I had to learn. So I was studying constantly and I learned how to really learn how to read at St. John's in a different way, in an efficient way. And so by the time I got out of St. John's, I knew I was ready for the world. So I went to I went to law school because of Jason Brussman. And then after law school, that's when I applied. Um, I went I was accepted into the FBI. I applied during my second year of law school. Right on. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, that's fascinating just to hear about the reading because, I mean, you're not going to avoid reading as a, as a lawyer, my God, uh, let alone the writing. I mean, nobody can understand what a lawyer is saying or, <laughs> or whatever documents are put in front of you, right? So then you become, uh, you, 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 you've got your law degree and then you're now making the, the jump into the FBI. What prompted you to make the decision to, to apply to the FBI and what was kind of your, your goals and objectives as you were going through that process? Well, the F, so this was at the height of the crack epidemic, maybe the, the, the last phase of that height. My friends were getting eaten by the streets in Yonkers. So if, if they weren't killing themselves, they were going to prison. And so I didn't necessarily want to be a law enforcement officer because law enforcement was coming to get us in many cases. But when I was in law school, 
they recruited me in my second year. And I thought to myself, I just took a step back from it. And I said, you know, I don't necessarily agree with everything that's going on with our systems. So maybe if I am a part of that system, I can learn the system and then help to change it. So that's why I went into the FBI. It was reluctantly, but because of that, that was my motivation. I, um, so as my application was pending, I worked for a law firm for like six to eight months. It was a medical malpractice law firm in New York. And then I got the call to go into the FBI. And, you know, that was, that was the experience of a lifetime, to tell the truth. I mean, it was, here I was. As a kid, as an eight-year-old kid, I, I did have dreams of becoming a cop, a fireman, those kinds of things. As I grew older, my mindset was tainted because of what was happening to my friends. And here I was, I was doing everything that I saw on TV. I was undercover for two and a half years. I was traveling. Um, I was chasing down bank robbers, literally chasing them on the street. It was, it was one of those things, you know, kidnappings, all these great things that I was doing. And then there came a point in time where I think they gave me too much too soon because at about the three-year mark, I became a little bored. The undercover case was winding down and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I wanted to go uh, to DC to get into management. And they told me there was a seven-year waiting list. And I was like, oh, seven years. So what am I going to do? And here's how God works. About a month after that, I get called into the U.S. Attorney's Office, and Christopher Droney, the U.S. Attorney, and Len Boyle, who is now the U.S. Attorney, the acting U.S. Attorney there in Connecticut, Len sits me down. He says, Q, I just want to know, you ever think of practicing law again? And I said, well, I said, Len, again? I never really practiced. I, I was six months. I mean, I never even went to court. I think I went to court for a hearing or something. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what, still didn't know what a lawyer was, and I was one. And so I said, Len, I, I, yeah, well, but I never really practiced. Maybe. I don't know. Why? What do you think? And he said, would you come over here and be a federal prosecutor? I was like, Len, do you realize who you're asking? I really don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> it's like, like, we're friends. I can be candid with you. And he said, no, Chris loves you. And uh, John loves you. you know, John Durham, is, was, you know, he just retired, but very well known globally. And so those three convinced me to come over to be a federal prosecutor when I had no idea what I was doing. So I, I accepted that challenge, became a federal prosecutor. That's like jumping from like the uh, single A ball all the way to the major is pretty fast, right? I mean, yeah. from your perspective, right? Maybe B ball, because I, I mean, <laughs> seriously, the people at the U.S. Attorney's Office, the prosecutors there are at such a high level when it comes to their intelligence I, you know, here I was, I'm just learning how to read properly. <laughs> and I'm, I'm prosecuting the case. So I walk into John Durham's office on my first day. I remember it like it was yesterday. I walk into his office. He greets me and he hands me two files and he says, you're going to, you're going to trial in a couple of weeks. And I was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> what that, is a, that is a baptism by fire right there. That's no joke. That's the way they did it. And uh, fortunately, you know, everything worked out. They, they gave me good guidance and mentorship through it. And, uh, and so I, I went to trial. Uh, had, I had two cases uh, that went to trial pretty quickly. And both those cases, the jury came back fairly, fairly fast. I think it was 23 and 32 minutes. I got jury verdicts and guilty verdicts. And, um, and, and then 
the the NFL recruited me, and that that kind of changed my life. So I was only at the U.S. Attorney's Office for about a year before leaving. And then that's exactly what I was going to ask you next. And now you have this intersection with professional sports. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about and then what you ended up doing on the professional sports side of things? Sure. So my, my long-term goal was to work for the NFL one day. I thought it would be maybe 10, 15 years down the road. I'd be a federal prosecutor for a while. But uh, they recruited me because the, my boss with the FBI got a job with the NFL. And he was running security. And so he asked me, they were thinking about creating this new program under Paul Tagliabue that would handle situations like the White House. I don't know if you remember back in the mid-90s when the White House at the in Dallas uh, happened with Michael Irvin. And, you know, they had this rental property and they were running some stuff through that rental property and doing some, you know, unsavory things. So the NFL, it was a black eye. For the NFL, they wanted somebody to come in and uh, create, help to create, and then communicate off-field misconduct policies in a better, more efficient way to the players on up to the the ownership. So they hired me to do that, and I left the U.S. Attorney's Office. Thankfully, they were gracious at the U.S. Attorney's Office about it. I mean, they took this risk on me, and then I'm leaving within a year. But they said I could come back. They'd leave the position open for nine months. If I didn't like what I was doing with the NFL, I could come back. I didn't uh, because I really liked what I was doing with the NFL. I was traveling around the country, meeting everybody who I'd seen on TV, everybody who is running the NFL from the owners on down to the players. And that was the beginning of my sports career. That's fantastic. And how long did you – sorry, did you work for the NFL for how long? And then uh... – how long before you sort of stepped out of that? So I worked there for two years. And then because of all the access I had, a lot of teams were starting to recruit me to work at the team level. And um, and I was recruited by the Jacksonville Jaguars. I decided to do that uh, at about the two-year mark. And I was with the Jaguars for two years, for three years. But I, I did it with the condition that I would learn the business side of, of sports. I was in, I was in the security department with the NFL. And although I wasn't doing physical security work, I was doing preemptive security work, proactive security work, trying to keep the players out of trouble primarily. And, uh, and so I, I didn't want that to be the whole of what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I wanted to learn the business. I wanted to learn the CBA. I knew the power was in the CBA. So that's what I, I did. I left the Jag- I left to go to the Jaguars and worked there with Wayne Weaver and some great people. Uh, and I did that for three years. And then I think uh, maybe the, we can talk a little bit about the, the work that you're doing now on the philanthropic side with uh, D2C. And then obviously, you're also a uh, published author. So yeah. maybe I could get you to talk about sort of those two things in concert in terms of you know, the book that you publish as well as the current work that you're doing now with uh, your philanthropic endeavor. Sure. Uh, and you know, sometimes we have to be forced into our calling. So although I enjoyed what I was doing with the Jaguars and in sports, I, um, I wasn't sure of my calling at the time. I wanted to be an owner of a team, maybe get, get a GM spot, president, and then an owner, ownership interest in a team. Uh, when I was with the Jaguars, a friend of mine, Chris Palmer, came into my office. Chris was a longtime friend of mine. He recruited me when I was in high school. He wanted me to go to Colgate to be a defensive back or running back. 
And uh, when when I decided not to go to Colgate, he implored me to go to BC instead of Pittsburgh. He just thought I would fit in better at BC. Well, he was the offensive coordinator at the Jaguars when I was in the front office. And he stepped into my office one day and he said, Q, I just want you to know, in sports, you are nobody until somebody fires you. Now, I don't know why he was saying this because, you know, Chris and I always spoke, but he stepped in the mouth for some reason he said that. You are nobody until somebody fires you. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean? He's a coach, though. Coaches get fired every three years. They're, they're looking for a new job. Players, they get fired all the time. Very rarely does a coach or a player escape that. So... I can understand from his perspective where he's coming from. So I leave the Jaguars. I go to the NBA. I was recruited by them to run one of their G League teams, which was the D League, the North Charleston Logators. I do that for about a year and a half, two years, and I'm calling to the president of the D League's office one day, and he says, you're fired. And I was like, what are you talking about? you got to be kidding me. Like, I never experienced being fired. It just it floored me. But it made me think about what Chris said. You are nobody until somebody fires you. So once I get fired by the D-League, now I'm thinking, what do I do? Like, it threw off everything. I wanted to own a team. And now I'm not on that track. So I had to figure it out quickly. And I did. I, I opened up my own businesses, a media company, a consultancy, a law firm. And then within the next five, six years, we really ramp up what we were doing in society. And that ultimately becomes dedication to community, which is a 501c not-for-profit right now. And D2C, as we call it, is, is my calling. I found my calling because I was fired. If I hadn't been fired, I would have never gotten into this. But I had to, I had to dive into my entrepreneurial interests, and one of them was this, how to give back. That's phenomenal. And then obviously you wrote a book, uh, which has got the most direct title you're probably going to come across, How Not to Get Killed by the Cops. Can you talk about what prompted you to write that book and and sort of what your mindset was behind it when you were writing that? Yeah, so I've been going, uh, as, as I'm building companies, um, going up and down the coast of I-95 and because I'm driving everywhere, building these companies between New York and Charlotte, and I'm being pulled over maybe once per year on a drug interdiction. And this is over the course of a decade. So I'm being pulled over and I handle the situation in two minutes and, and it's over. And at the time, my former wife says, you need to write a book about what you're doing because you can save some lives. Some, a lot of people don't know how to engage with the police. And I was like, I'm not writing a book. And she said, you need to write a book for our son. So when she said that, she pulled out the ace card. I mean, how could I say no? Because, so I wrote an essay. It's a 31-page essay to my son about how to engage with the police. But the bigger picture for me is how do you form substantive, successful, and sustainable relationships in life? That's the conversation I really wanted to have with him when he turned eight years old. So I write this book for him, and then the world explodes explodes or implodes with Trayvon being killed and, you know, Mike Brown, Michael Brown and Eric Garner. And my former wife said, you need to release that essay as a book to society. And that's what I did because I wrote the essay for my son. It was very intimate, very, it was just for him. So I released it as a book after we edited 
it for public consumption. And I got all these emails back from mothers and fathers and grandparents and cousins saying, thank you. This book is allowing us to have the conversation that our kids didn't want us to have with them. And so I knew we were on to something. And that book then becomes this movement that D2C has started because it gave birth to a new form for D2C. D2C is concentrates, it's focused on justice, but because of the traction of that book, we spend a lot of time training law enforcement officers and training communities about how to engage with each other, build these relationships. And that conversation that I was going to have with my son, he's eight right now. He's going to be nine. I wrote this book nine years ago, nine plus years ago. I haven't had that conversation with him yet. And the reason is because I'm still holding on to his innocence. I'm trying to, I'm putting it off. I want to give him another year or so. Uh, And my daughter is seven. I just want them to be kids, you know, without dealing with these adult issues. So I I figure I'll have that conversation with, with him and her when he's 10. Absolutely. And I think now is probably the, I think obviously just to kind of reflect on your background, I mean, you've done and accomplished a ton. I mean, uh, D1 athlete, uh, law degree, federal prosecutor, original G-man, which made me laugh, by the way, I didn't say it at the time. Can you imagine if you're, you know, you're a bank robber and you're running from a G-man who's a former track star? Like that guy probably didn't know what the hell happened to him. (laughs) That happened to me Uh, too. (laughs) Sorry? What happened? I had a, a, a an A and D, an armed and dangerous bank robber from Florida, who was uh, staying. Who had a lead. He was supposed to be staying with his mother in uh, in Stanford, and so my job was to go talk to the mother and see if he was staying there, where he was. Maybe she could give us more information. And so I go there a couple of times, but I announce I'm coming. I tell her, I'm coming, I'll be there at two o'clock. And I go by and she says, I don't know where he is. I, you know, I'm trying to find him myself. I think the fourth or fifth time I go by, I go by unannounced. Homeboy is standing right there, cooking. <laughs> and so I see him through the screen door and there's a back door and he runs out the back door and I have to run and track him down. And I do. And thank, thankfully, I have my, I have my uh, Air Jordans on at the time. I caught him and he said to the marshals, this is what they told me. He said, the thing that, the one thing that stood in my way of freedom was a fast FBI agent. <laughs> Real fast. <laughs> oh, dude. That's so funny. Um, and then, like you said, uh, you know, you worked in professional sport. You were a GM. Uh, you working on sort of both sides uh, of the game. And then obviously the philanthropic work and then, and then the work you've done as an author. So you have a fantastic background and it kind of takes us up to where we wanted to get to, to, to kind of the conversation of the day, which is to kind of dive right in and just ask. So from your perspective, based on what we've seen over the last 18 months, two years, and obviously this goes back years and years, but what has been the, tr- the change and the transition that we've seen in the, in the conversation around social justice um, its impact on sport and how athletes are engaging on it. And then how do you view it kind of having this very unique perspective of, from the law enforcement, the legal, uh, and then obviously the athletic side. So just kind of, it, it's an open-ended question, but kind of how are you seeing where we're at right now and what are the implications for where potentially we can go? Well, we're, we're, we've been at a tipping point for the last year. And when I, when, when I, um, I remember it was June 1st 
when I received a bunch of phone calls from my friends and they just called me starting at nine in the morning. I was getting this flurry of phone calls and they all asked me the same question. They said, what, what do I do? Now, this is a week to the day after George Floyd was killed and they just wanted to know what they could do. And I think they needed that week to digest what happened. And, you know, you see the video over and over again. So a week of that and they call me and I give the same advice to all of them at the time. I said, well, first of all, you can no longer be silent. It's absolutely unacceptable to be silent about these issues. These issues are staring us in the face. So you have to be silent. You have to you have to voice your opinion. You have to no longer just say nothing. And then secondly, you have to lead from the front, not side by side. Now, all these people who were calling me were white males uh, between the ages of 40 and 55, and they were all CEOs or heads of something. And so they're leaders. So I said, you have to, you have to be a leader here because people of color have been, and women have been screaming about these justice issues for decades, if not centuries. And, and they've been screaming from mountaintops. So now you have to be the one screaming from the mountaintop. Allow everybody else to help you, to inform you, but you have to be the one that screams. And then thirdly, it's all about action. So if you're going to just be utilizing your platform to discuss this or to be make people aware of these issues, that's, that's a waste of time if you don't also couple it with action. There has to be some substantive action that's going to get us to a place where we are moving this forward, where we're evolving, where we're not stuck, because we're stuck in this cycle. When we talk about these issues, they go away, and then they come back up, and we talk about them again, but nobody is taking it from discussion to action. What are the solutions? And so when I said that to them, they were like, okay, I get it. So when we talk about how I feel, that's how I feel about this. I feel we're at a point, it's a tipping point, where there has to be action. No longer is it acceptable to be silent. We need folks who hadn't ordinarily in, in our history led. We need them to lead from the front, not from the side. There are a lot of great people who are walking side by side with folks of color and women during these very turbulent times during the civil rights and other times, side by side, holding hands. But the difference now is they need to be in front. They need to be screaming from the mountaintops. And the, those who are in a vulnerable state can be the informers. They can help to, in the back channels, they can help them. But we need to see those faces up front saying, this is not right. We need to have a change. And we need that action. So that's where I believe we are and what we need to do in order to move forward. And that's why with D2C, that's where we are. We're all about action. And our action is education. Education, educating society about how to build better relationships. And Q, um, you know, Duncan shaped this conversation about your path and your journey. And as you've gone along your path, you've been um, quite impressive in, in the places that you've, you've worked. 
but also all of those steps along the way help to shape who you are today and the way you approach all aspects of your life. Um, the individuals that are going to be participating at this summit are individuals that work in the, the space of athlete development. And this topic of social justice is very present in the minds of not only the athletes, but those of us working with the athletes. So when you reflect on your journey and those kind of aha moments that helped you create D2C, what was it that allowed you to create an organization that is your calling, but actually is doing the work to help change the narrative and allow for action to take place because you talk about action needing to happen. So again, it's your journey, what you pulled from your journey, creating this organization and what you're doing. And, and we want you to share this because as these individuals who sit in the seats working with athletes who want to do something, what can they do to help support their athletes? Yeah, it's a great point. And the, the athlete platform is, is tremendous, you know, nationally and globally. And that's why we have a sports division because we recognize how important it is at D2C to utilize sports to message society. I, I have said for years that education is the key. So that's why we concentrate on educating and we educate athletes, organizations, leagues, and teams about these issues so that they can use their platform efficiently. The worst thing that I see for the athlete population is when they want to do something, but either they don't know what to do or they don't know how to do it because they, they haven't um, accessed the foundation of that education needed. So have, have you, do you remember many athletes coming out when George Floyd's killed, they're speaking out, but some aren't necessarily fluent in some of the issues. So they're speaking from an emotional p place, which is fine. But why not couple the emotion with a foundation of knowledge? Once you do that, now you're really powerful. But when you just do it with emotion, it might not take. It might not have the traction. So we tell those who are in that space to help to educate the athletes. Athletes are leaders. People look to them for guidance, even if they don't necessarily don't have an expertise in it, in, in a certain subject. They look to them for guidance. Same thing with entertainers which is why we have an entertainment division too. There's influence in sports and entertainment. So we are one organization that educates folks so that when they do have an opportunity to speak, they speak from a place of knowledge. That's gonna change things. And was there a moment, because you talked about the emotion coupled with the education that you learned from your life experience to not lead with emotion, but to um, still have emotion yet be educated in what you're speaking. So you come across to those that are listening and it resonates with them rather than, you know, they might be standoffish and not hear the messaging. What was it that allowed you to do that to now impart that knowledge on others? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the humanness of us all, um, because of that humanness, emotion is going to surface. So I'm very conscious of my emotions, very. And I counter them with, you know, that middle ground thinking. 
uh, knowledge, the, you know, researching, I counter it with that because there's so many times when I just want to say something I have to stop myself because I don't want to say it the wrong way. I don't want to say it in an inefficient way. And I want to always make sure that it's backed up by fact, by truth. And, and I've, I've made the misstep, believe me, a couple of times. And the great thing about the folks who are around me is I get called out on it immediately. I remember one time I got called out. I went on social media and I posted something. There was a, there was a, it looked, looked like a man who was dressed in all black garb, head to toe, helmet, masks, all kinds of things. And during the, the protests, he was going around and smashing windows. And there was a message with that posting, I shared it, that said that that man was a cop. That was, and he was doing it so that he could blame the peaceful protesters. I don't know if you remember that video, yeah. but I, I, I put that up and I said, this is atrocious. So a buddy of mine who is the president of the Yonkers, Yonkers uh, y, the PBA, the Police Benevolent Association, he called me out. He was like, he was like, Q, come on, man. That's, that's, there's no proof that that's a cop. And so Keith Olson is his name. When he did that, I was like, you know what? Yeah, this, I have to be reminded that this is an emotional thing, but I have to, I cannot allow myself to be guided by just emotion. And so I apologized to him. I apologized to everybody and I, I took it down. But I acknowledged that I did it. I was wrong. So we have to be very conscious of our emotions, especially if you have any level of influence, because people will listen to you. You know, I, I know one of the cornerstones of dedication to community, one of the foundations is all about relationships. And it's something that means a lot to you. And you bring such varied perspectives because you've walked in the shoes of an athlete. You've walked in the shoes of a front office staff, you've walked in the shoes of law enforcement and, and legal. And so when you talk about relationships, um, you are also bringing forth all these different perspectives that allow you to connect and forge and foster these relationships. So for those that are listening, often people are just in one of those categories and it's hard to create that sense of connectivity to the other groups. If they're an athlete, they might not be able to connect to law enforcement. If they're law enforcement, they might not be able to connect to the community. What advice do you give individuals um, so we can move forward and start to heal, start to foster relationships, start to reconcile? Yeah, thanks, Stephanie. And we, we have an actual curriculum that we created over the course of a dozen years to address that, to address reconciliation. How do you get to that place of connectedness togetherness? How do you get to that place of harmony? And, and this recipe for reconciliation speaks exactly to what you just asked. How do we build relationships that are going to be substantive, successful, and sustainable? And the first step is to listen. The, the issues that we see in society right now, a lot of it uh, could be, a lot of them could be avoided if we would just listen to each other. I mean, it's it's that simple. I know it's, it ain't easy at times, but it's that simple at times. So listening, and we say listening beautifully. I I wish I could take credit for listening beautifully, but I I'm not able to take credit for it. 
there was a young um, student at University of Maryland, and I was about to do uh, have a conduct a, a, a forum at, at UMD, and in preparation for it, we had a phone call, and I was going through our recipe for reconciliation. And this young lady, she must be nine, must have been nineteen or twenty at the time. She said, "Yeah, listening and listening beautifully is really what it's about." And I said to her at that point, "I said I am stealing that. So it's it's going to be about listening beautifully. It's not just listening, and because beautifully, it it means that you're listening to listening to somebody's spirit, their heart, and their soul, not just the words they're saying. And that's what we're all about." How to how do you penetrate the hearts of people, not just the minds of people? And I think that is the beginning of the answer, the beginning of one of the solutions to getting to this of getting to this place of reconciliation, listening beautifully. I think, I think that's really fascinating, the idea of, of, you know, taking the emotion out of it, which is kind of a counterintuitive thought when you think about it, this idea of detaching and removing mm-hmm. your emotion, particularly when you're talking about such charged issues. So I'm just curious, kind of beyond removing the emotion, you know, what mistakes do you think, you know, athletes make or maybe athlete development professional or specialists make, you know, when they're talking to their athletes about this and they're trying to get involved? What are the biggest mistakes that you're seeing if you sort of exclude the, the emotional side out of it? in terms of wanting to be involved and actually have a voice in this process? Yeah, the the preconception that it's an us versus them, that that there are sides here. The, the, the shift for me in life came when I viewed everybody, no matter their position, I viewed everybody from this pool of individuals who just needed love and could love and we could we could get together i'm unable to count the number of friends i have with the relationship started from an adversarial position like you wouldn't think that we would be friends but here we are and it's because my mother and she's really the foundation of this whole concept of building relationships for me, my mother was the best relationship builder I'd ever seen in my life. Incredible. And I say was, she still is. My mother is incredible. She's an incredible woman. But she taught my brother and me how to build relationships. So my brother and I have these friends that we've had since we were two, three, four, like lifelong friends. I don't know many people who've had so who have so many friends that they've known for so much time, but we do. And a lot of it is because we watch my mother and that's what she does. So it's, if I were to give some advice, just foundational advice, it's not an us versus them. I know, I know people are saying stuff that flies in the face of common sense, flies in the face of what some folks believe, but I've seen people who felt completely different from the way I feel about certain things. After we have several conversations, they come closer to the middle. And that's where I want people. I don't want people to lose who they are. I just want people to come closer to the middle. And if we can get that to happen, I think we change the world. And that's an interesting point that us versus them, because I got to imagine... Having been on the the law enforcement side, 
that's probably in a lot of ways the mindset that they're bringing to the table. I'm just curious, how do you have that conversation when you're talking to police? Maybe you're talking even to lawyers on the on the prosecutor side. Is that something that you see? And then how, how do you kind of combat that? So dignity costs nothing for me to give, and it means a world for you to receive it. If I can go into a relationship believing that everybody wants to leave this with their dignity, even if I'm arresting somebody, as they're in cuffs, I want them to feel like somebody cares about them. They have their dignity. It'll shift the way they think about not just me as a law enforcement officer, but about law enforcement in general. And so we need to start to look at each other in that way. And it takes some empathy to be able to do that. And we, we teach and facilitate about the process of gaining empathy, but that dignity, it's big. You know, if, if, if when, when we have a disagreement, if we can disagree and leave with our dignity in place, we might still not be there yet. We might not be in the middle yet. We might not be closer to a resolution. But if we can leave with our dignity, that means we can come back and do it all over again and, and work it through. I think that's a key. We have to have as a basis the fact that we are going to want to, we're going to leave with our dignity, but we're going to also grant the other person's dignity. Hugh, um, continuing on this about dignity and, and law enforcement, you were involved in the creation of a short film. And um, if you can give a little background, and then there was uh, something that I want to hit on after you give a little background about the short film um, from the uh, premiere that I think is, is very telling. But if you can share about the short film and the the idea and concept around it. Sure. In Yonkers, New York, thank you, Stephanie. In Yonkers, New York, uh, the school system, Yonkers Public Schools, didn't see that they had the money to support athletics. Uh, this was about 10 years ago. They were starting to talk about this. How could they save some money? And so they were going to do away with a bunch of sports, and football is one of them. There are eight high schools in Yonkers. So they were thinking about doing away with sports in Yonkers. And if football is gone, you're talking about releasing three, four, five hundred young people to the streets, basically. Because I know what football did for me. It kept me off the streets. I didn't have the time between studying the way I had to study because of that learning deficit and playing football. I was busy all the time. So... Now, if you're taking football away, I have all this free time. What am I going to do? I'm going to look to make some money. How am I going to make money? Now, there's a chance I might not make it the legal way. So because they were going to do away with sports, everybody started to think about what, how do we make lemonade out of these lemons? And they decided to, to consolidate those eight high school football teams into two football teams. And then... Here's, here's the brilliance of it. The superintendent, Edwin Casada, uh, his staff, the like I mentioned, Keith Olson, the police commissioner, John Muller, and Dan DiMatteo, and some of the coaches in Yonkers decided to name those teams the Yonkers Force and the Yonkers Brave and to align them with first responders. The force being aligned with police, the brave being aligned with fire, 
And so what happened is truly magical. I know for the Yonkers Force, the team that I, I support, and I support all of Yonkers, but I, the Force has a special place in my heart. The police, they support them, not just by buying their uniforms and cooking them meals for pregame meal, and that, but they're there at every practice, every practice. It's incredible to see the coming together of community and law enforcement through sports. And that's what happened. So when when I heard about what was actually going to happen, and, and we had been working with the Yonkers Public Schools for a few years by that point, so we were a part of the process. When I heard it was going to come to fruition, there was a game, the Force versus the Brave, that was going to be played under the lights on a Friday night. It was the first time ever in the history of Yonkers. I said, we need to at least chronicle this, and that's what we did. We chronicled it, and just to get it on film. And then we made a documentary about it. We made a documentary about what Yonkers was doing, made it into a 15-minute short. And it's pretty powerful to see the reconstruction of a city with law enforcement and the community. Let me remind you, they've been at odds for decades and now coming together in this way through the public school system. Um, it was it was fairly incredible. So we, we, we made a documentary, and it's called I Got Your Back. And it's based on how the police and and the community is coming together, are coming together through this this methodology. Spectacular. Yeah. And I wanted you to share that because as someone who hasn't lived in, in the different spaces as you watching it and then hearing those involved speak from their experience, it truly captures um, what it means to bring people with different opinions together and how it can be life changing and how exposure is key. Um, some of those young men had never had a positive experience with law enforcement. And because of this opportunity, their their perspective changed. And after the murder of George Floyd, Keith Olson was scared to face those young men, but they embraced him with open arms because he taught them that um, not every cop is a bad cop, just like not every human is, is a bad human. So I wanted you to share that um, story because again, I think for individuals in this athlete development space, it's another um, example of how bringing different perspectives together can allow for a common goal and understanding that we can come from different places, we can have different opinions, but allowing um, the other person to share, to listen, and really, you know, at the end of the day, we want to equip our athlete development specialists with as many resources and tools so they can do their job successfully and help their athletes avoid pitfalls, yet still feel supportive in whatever their um, passion, their purpose is, um, especially in the space of social justice. Yeah. And, and, and so here's one of the ultimate um, wins for everybody. So they, they changed the lives of all these youngsters who have had, you know, some conflict um, with law enforcement. And now, because of this, what's going on, the Yonkers Police Department decided that they were going to, they were going to take care of any of the costs it, that would be um, absorbed by any of the kids on that team who want to apply to be Yonkers Police Department officers. 
So there are, there are certain costs in studying. You have to buy books and, and applying. There's like, you know, a couple hundred dollars, whatever. So now the Yonkers Police Department is funding the application of these kids to become YPD officers. Not only are they having good relations with them, but they're going to become cops. It's, it's, it's tremendous what's happening. And that's a program that Commissioner John Muller and the uh, PBA president, Keith Olson, put in place. And they've, they've gotten, I think they have five, five kids who decided they're going to go through the process already. That really is amazing. And I think it sort of stems to or speaks to, sorry, the the how you outline that this is really all about relationship building. And I think that's one of the fascinating things, because I think if you look at there's a lot of research out there as it relates to professional athletes and those professional athletes who are out there networking, building relationships outside of their sport are going to be more successful in their sport. And I think uh, the idea that really this is about you know, building those relationships, building those bridges to communities. I think that's a, it's a, it's an absolutely phenomenal approach. And I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you is, so if you're a, an athlete development specialist and you're working with an athlete and you want to talk to them about, look, this is all about relationship building. How do you communicate that to, to your athletes in a way that they can understand it and that you're going to have to talk to somebody maybe that you wouldn't normally either want to talk to mm-hmm. or have access to, you're going to have to seek it out. What would you recommend both to the athlete and to the individual who's trying to help that athlete build that bridge? It's a great question. It has to be personal. The reason why I think we've experienced some success with law enforcement and the communities served is because it's personal to us. We, we do all of our teaching through story. So it's the stories that resonate. And we find common ground because of the stories. The one connector for all of us as human beings is pain. Pain. Everybody goes through struggles, challenges, and pain. And that pain, you might be somebody who grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, to CEO parents, and went to private school. How do you connect with me? A kid who was on welfare for 17 years, single parent, struggling. Well, there's pain in both of our lives. And that pain, ultimately, if we're vulnerable enough to reveal it, will connect us. So I tell people who want to engage in a way that brings out the best in folks on these issues, to just reveal your pain through your story and tell why you think this is important because of your story. And then what happens is the connection starts. And so for player, athlete, development people, if they reveal a little bit about themselves and why this is important, athletes will then start to connect through that pain and they'll start to reveal themselves. And now it becomes personal. It becomes, the relationship becomes personal. It's not superficial. It's not just business because you're letting somebody in on your life. That's really interesting. Like that, the concept of being vulnerable. And I think that's something you hear over and over again. If you really want to drive it, you do have to be vulnerable. And like you said, that pain that a lot of provides that opportunity for being vulnerable. 
if you were to articulate a path forward and if you were to kind of like dream a dream for, you know, using the, the power of sport to really have an impact on, on the social justice converse, uh, conversation within the U.S. Uh, and beyond, what does that look like for you? Collaborative. Uh, we, we build out of partnership with, with organizations and individuals. A lot of folks in sports are very territorial because, you know, there's competition. You don't want your best practices being adopted by your competition necessarily. But with this, this is bigger than sports. So it has to be collaborative. I would say that the folks in this space could change the world if they behaved in a collaborative way. Think about it as we're not competitors. We're collaborators. We're partners. And then having the sports industry together on this issue with the influence that sports has, it'll shift culture. Because sports historically has dictated culture. So if we want to shift culture, we have to do it collaboratively. And I, I'm, it's my prayer that that's going to happen. I see it. The evidence is right before us when I see partners that we have coming together for this common goal, for this mission, this movement. I would... Um would say, you know, in, in, in reviewing um, articles and press releases that in the last 12 months, organizations have stated that they are contributing dollars to this cause because it is something that's impacting everyone. Organizations have also hired um, a point of contact, a, D, a de- uh, diversity, uh, equity and inclusion um, point person at, at the organizations. So, one would say it's a great first step that they're putting funds towards it. But now what? Because I think there has been a lot of now what, you know, again, organizations are putting the funding, but do they have the true resources, the educational background, thought suggestions, how we can continue to move the needle? Because this is something that um, has been ongoing for years and years. It's just become more present in our mind's eye in the last, you know, 18 to 24 months. But again, with all these resources that have been allocated, what can we do to change the narrative? Yeah, it's it's all going to start with education. I mean, policy is born out of education. Good policy is born out of education. So it has to be that there's a commitment to education. And then once you have the commitment, okay, that's what we're going to make sure we do properly, now getting the right people to do it. And we, we're we not the only ones doing it. D2C is not the only ones doing it. We have several partners who are also doing this work, educating, maybe in different ways. Find one of those great organizations that does this well and then latch on to not just them, but their partners. And now you're in the hub of that space where education is at its finest, and that education is gonna shift. I'm telling you, when we see what happens in these sessions with law enforcement officers, and you see over the course of just four to eight hours, they walk in in one way, they walk out differently. It's, there's a commitment to change. They're more conscious of 
who they are, very introspective. That's what we need. And it's that simple. It's education. It's just who are you entrusting that, that education with? Who are you giving those keys to? Say, educate my organization. And, you know, we're, we're pleased that we're one of those organizations doing it. But, but we're not the only one. By the way, what we seek to do is inspire others to do this work because it's such a massive challenge. We need, we need a movement. We need masses of people to do this work, not just D2C. And what do you say to those that um, say, um, I work with athletes that are predominantly white. I don't work with anyone that is, uh, there's no one of color um, within my organization, within my team. What do you say to those individuals that might think, I don't need this education because there is no diversity within the athletes that I'm working with? Well, that's why you need it. Because um, first of all, we're better when we're diverse, just as a people, when we have different perspectives. But the folks in those sports need to be a part of this process because this is personal to them. You might think that they're in a bubble, but when the real world hits, there is no bubble. And I say this for a lot of folks who live like, you know, we have white neighborhoods and black neighborhoods uh, in, in America. And some folks who are in, for example, white neighborhoods might say, you know what, this isn't in my backyard. So, uh, you know, I'm in, I'm in a bubble. I, I don't really need to worry about this. But that's not true. Because once it comes to your neighborhood, because it seeps into all aspects, all segments of society, once it comes to your neighborhood, then it becomes personal to you. Then you want to do something. It's a little bit too late. You want to do the right thing moralistically. But then secondly, it's going to benefit you. You're going to have a better society when we come from a place of belonging, where every human being feels like they're welcome in this society. We'll have a better society for everybody. Even if you are in a privileged state, you will have an even better quality of life if everybody around you, whether they look like you or not, feels like they are welcome. And that's probably a, a phenomenal place to, to wrap this up. I think uh, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Again, you know, we're, this conversation is going to need to be had over and over and over again, and we're happy to, to contribute to it. Stephanie, thanks so much for being on the call today. And again, many thanks to our guest today, who is, again, a D1 athlete, a federal prosecutor, a sport executive, he's a philanthropist, and perhaps the fastest G-men ever to be uh, in the, uh, in the uh, FBI. So again, many thanks to uh, Quentin Williams from Dedication to Community. We really appreciate you taking the time today to have this conversation, and we look forward to future dialogue down the line. So again, many thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. I appreciate both of you. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. And more importantly, we greatly appreciate your support of PADS. We'd also like to acknowledge the support of our global partners for their ongoing support of all of our initiatives, including the Athlete Development Podcast Series. Again, be sure to be on the lookout for information regarding live Q&A sessions, and we urge you to continue to dive deep into all of the different podcasts that we're bringing to you over the coming weeks. Again, thanks for your interest and for your support of PADS.